Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about practices and perspectives on helping others to engage with the natural world. In this episode, I'm talking about bats. There are around 5,400 mammal species in the world. Of those, 20%, more than 1,400 species, are bats. They live in almost every part of the world, except the Arctic and Antarctic, with 18 species here in the UK. All of this diversity means that bats can be useful indicator species, meaning changes to bat populations can indicate that there are changes in aspects of biodiversity. All of the bat species in the UK depend on insects for food, and so changes in bat populations can indicate that there are problems with insect populations and can tell us when habitats are suffering. Sadly, many bat species around the world are vulnerable or endangered due to a range of factors from deforestation and habitat loss to changes in agricultural practices and even how we humans construct our buildings. Since 1991, the Bat Conservation Trust has run a diverse range of projects to help protect these amazing animals. They work to monitor bat populations across the UK, promote conservation through its policy and advocacy work, and provide advice to the public about a range of bat-related issues, like what to do if you find an injured bat, and how building renovations can include features which actually support bat populations. Today I'm speaking with the Bat Conservation Trust about citizen science projects to monitor populations here in the UK, with tips on how to lead a bat walk, and a little bit of bat ecology along the way. Without further ado, on with the episode. Joining me today to talk about the Bat Conservation Trust is Philip Briggs, uh, one of their monitoring managers. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Great to talk to you again, because we actually met many, many years ago, actually at the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust's London site, the London Wetlands Centre. And I understand that that is actually one of the places that got you started interested in, in bats to begin with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been interested in wildlife from a very early age. And um, I do actually remember some of my first encounters with bats. So, for example, you know, watching bats flying around barns ponds and thinking god what amazing animals they are and i wonder how you you tell them apart and if somebody had said told me that would be my job one day i, I just would have believed them in about 1998 when the the wild and wetlands trust were setting up the london wetland center i applied to be a volunteer there and um, i soon started getting more involved and in 2001 i joined one of the bat walks that i led at the london wetland center and I was just instantly hooked. Um, the very next day, I went online and ordered a bat detector. And um, Dr. Richard Bullock, who was the um, kind of ecologist at the site, he just immediately got me involved in stuff like bat walks and bat surveys. And a couple of years later, um, a job came up at the Bat Conservation Trust, thanks to this volunteering um, opportunity and also the opportunity given to me by a member of staff at the site. Um, I really you know, had an amazing career change and it's been an incredibly rewarding thing to be working on. The London site, they do lots of bat walks. They're incredibly popular and it's actually one of the more important bat sites in, well, in London, but I understand it's also potentially like a UK and potentially even Europe-wide important site. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's often quite difficult to quantify these things and compare sites with sites because 
the the data are collected in different ways and it can be quite hard to make direct comparisons. But certainly when the UK's top experts did some surveys there, and he really assessed that it was probably of national importance for soprano pipistrels based on the levels of activity he was recording there. Um, and I've been doing monitoring there for, for many years, including leaving out a static bat detector throughout the years so that records um, all, all night long, all year round. And it gives incredibly detailed information about the way bats are using the site. It seems like bats are pretty much active there all night long. So it's an incredibly important foraging resource for bats. Um, there's loads of insects for them to feed on. When you're outside the urban areas, you get a real dip in temperature in the middle of the night. In London, because of the heat island effect, uh, you know the, the temperature doesn't dip so much. So you get insects remaining active throughout the night, and therefore bats will feed continuously throughout the night. So it's an incredibly valuable resource for bats. Oh wow, I hadn't I hadn't fully realized the potential impact of the the kind of urban heat island on that. That's very neat. We've talked a little bit about bats now and about information that we can get out of it. And I know that the Bat Conservation Trust, the BCT, does a a range of monitoring work across the UK. Could you tell us a bit about citizen science initiatives that people might be able to get involved in? Yes, we've got various ways that people get involved. And it's, it's mainly through the National Bat Monitoring Programme. This was set up in 1996 because there certainly was evidence that bat numbers had declined over the last 100 years or so. But because bats are quite difficult to study due to the fact that they're nocturnal, they're hard to observe, they're hard to identify without special equipment, we just didn't have the long-term data sets that you get from other species groups. So there was a real gap in our knowledge. By the mid-90s, there were various reasons why it now seemed the right time to try and set up a UK-wide citizen science programme. One of these reasons is the fact that bat detectors had become smaller, they'd become cheaper, more accessible to people. So more and more people were buying these devices, which enable you to convert the ultrasonic these high-pitched sounds that we can't hear into sounds that we can hear. So these bat calls could be converted to sounds we could hear, which enable us to identify that bats are flying around near us and also give us some clues as to what species it is. Throughout the 80s and certainly by the early 90s, there'd been the setting up of a, a network of local bat groups across the UK. So there was an increasing volunteer movement of bats enthusiasts who were doing all sorts of bat conservation and um, bat monitoring in the local area. BCT set up the National Bat Monitoring Programme, and we have surveys geared to all levels of experience or non-experience. We have a real beginner level survey called the Sunset Survey. And for this one, you don't need a bat detector. You don't need any previous experience of doing a bat survey or identifying bats or doing anything with bats at all. So it's a really good way for, for new people to get involved. And the idea is from sunset, you just watch bats for an hour, look out for bats. This can be from in your garden or from your window or your balcony or go to your local green space. And there's a very simple form to download from our website. And you just fill in whether you see bats, how many you see. If you think you know what kind of species it is, what species it is, then you can record that. If you, all you can say is that it's a bat, then you just note down that's a bat. And we provide a a simple visual guide to identifying a few species just from their flight patterns. And that's often a really useful clue. For example, um, if you see a bat, a relatively small bat that's kind of 
doing lots of really maneuverable twists and turns and just flitting right over your head. Um, that's most li likely to be a pipistrelle. They're the bats you'll, mo you'll most commonly see. If you see a bat flying really high in the sky and doing steep swoops, this is more likely to be a noctule. Whereas if you see a bat skimming very low over water, that's likely to be a Dobenton's bat. So even without any special equipment like a bat detector, you can narrow down what kind of species it could be just from the way it's flying. Um, there are some quite obvious differences in the flight behavior of different species. On this survey, you also look out for any other nocturnal wildlife, so other mammals such as hedgehogs, foxes, badgers, birds such as owls, any other wildlife you see. And then you can just go to a link on our website to input your results. And then we will produce maps, infographics, summarizing what has been seen this year. It's also a good way of discovering a roost in your local area. So another option with the survey is to go out an hour before dawn. And that is challenging, getting up an hour before dawn. But once you're out, it's a fantastic time to be out and about. And what you're really looking for is bats swarming. So what they do when they return to the roost in the morning is they swarm around the roost entrance before they go back in. And it's an amazing sight to see. And it's a really obvious sign um, that that's where bats are roosting. And if you find a roost, that's obviously really important information. So that's a sunset survey. So anyone can do that. You don't need any previous experience. But we also have another number of other surveys, which we use to produce species population trends. We have the roost counts. Um, again, anyone can take part in that, but the one key thing you need is to know of a roost you can count. Quite often it's householders who discover bats on their property and will just count the bats. And you just simply stand below the, the exit of the, the roost, so where the bats are emerging at dusk, and count the bats out. Some people just hear of a, a roost near them, particularly if you're a bat enthusiast, you might hear of roosts through your local bat group. It's quite simple, but you do need to know of a roost you can count. Yeah, I was going to say it's so it's something that you don't have to go like up into an attic or, or anything like that. Because... No, that's right. And it's important you don't do that because you need to avoid disturbing the bats. So it's all about just quietly standing below the roost exits um, at dusk and then just counting the bats out as they emerge. Right. And then we've got a couple of bat detector surveys, um, the field survey and the waterway survey. So for these two, you need a tunable bat detector, also known as a heterodyne bat detector. With these, you tune around to different frequencies or different pitches. It's a bit like tuning into an old-fashioned radio, so similar to um, different radio stations broadcasting on different frequencies. Bats will, in effect, broadcast or call, emit their calls at different frequencies. So you tune to different frequency settings on your bat detector to listen in to different bat calls. You'll hear the high-pitched sounds converted into very distinctive sounds and rhythmic patterns. And with a bit of practice, you can learn to differentiate between, between different species based on, on listening to their sounds on one of these bat detectors. Both these surveys involve walking a transect. So a transect is a route that's been mapped out with various stopping points where you stop to record um, for a, a set number of minutes and count the number of times um, the, the bats fly past. For the field survey, we focus on 
common pipistrelle, soprano pipistrelle, noctule, and serotine. So this is for people with a bit of experience, uh, maybe a little, sort of reasonably good experience with ident- identifying a range of species. The waterway survey in August is a bit simpler. You're just walking along a, a one kilometre stretch of waterway. You stop for four minutes at a time at 10 stopping points and you listen out for Dubenton's bats. As I mentioned earlier, Dubenton's bats are the bats that skim very low over the surface of the water. So when you pick up what you think sounds like a Dubenton's bat on your bat detector, you then just look at the surface of the water to see if you can see bats skimming low over the water. And then the fourth survey from which we collect data used for um, producing species trends is the hibernation survey. So this one is for very experienced bat workers who've got a license to enter hibernation sites. So it's really, really important that bats aren't disturbed during hibernation. So um, you can't go and do these counts if you don't have a license. You haven't been trained up um, to, to carry out these surveys and, you know, trained trained to identify the bats and look out, look for the bats, collects a huge amount of really useful data. And in fact, if you join your local bat group, um, many bat groups will give unlicensed people the opportunity to join a licensed person to go on one of these surveys. So it's a really great opportunity, a bit like a sort of Easter egg hunt. The bats are sort of tucked away often and quite hard to find. And it's always really exciting when you do spot one. The next challenge is trying to identify it from from what you can see of the bats. It is really really fascinating, but um, you know it can only be done if you're with somebody who who does have a license or if you've got a license yourself. With those hibernation sites, will they be the same sites that they use for roosting, or will will they choose will they have different hibernation from the rest of the year roosting sites? Mostly, they'll be different sites because bats need very different. They've got very different roosting requirements between the summer and the winter. So in summer, they, well, the, the females form large maternity roosts and they will pick a, a roost, usually often a building or, or a tree, which is nice and warm. So it might be sort of particularly in a position where it's warmed by the sun during the day. And they will also crowd into these roosts in large numbers because obviously lots of bodies means lots of warmth. Really, they, they want to stay, keep their bodies warm to promote the, the development of their babies. And at this time of year, the males will probably be roosting on their own or in ones or twos. They don't need this type of um, roost condition. In the wintertime, though, bats it might surprise some people that they're actually looking for quite a cool place to roost. Um, you think of most animals trying to keep warm during the winter. But bats actually go into a torpor because there are very few insects around, which is what they feed on in the UK. They go into hibernation, they lower their body temperature, slow down their whole metabolism. And this will mean that they can survive the winter just on the fat reserves that they've built up before going into hibernation. They will wake up occasionally to feed if if it's a milder spell, or occasionally they will come out to drink. But um, it's very important that they're in a very undisturbed site so that they don't get woken up and um, kind of burn off some of their fat reserves, which might make it harder for them to survive the winter. So in the wintertime, they'll be in places like caves, mines, tunnels, trees, buildings. But there are some, some sites which have bats roosting in the summertime and also hibernating in the wintertime because they just so happen to, to have the right conditions at, at both these times of year. With the transect surveys, are they 
the particular, I, I know with some of the other ones, you, uh, if you want to participate in one of those, you, you need to contact the organization that's running the site and you kind of sign up for a particular one kilometer square. Um, is that the case with these ones or can the transects be anywhere it's kind of convenient near you where, where you can walk a transect? We've generated a list of one kilometer squares throughout the UK. So this was randomly selected. They are also stratified for habitat type, which means that we're just ensuring that each type of habitat is evenly represented. So we don't get some habitat types underrepresented, which could be important to monitor. You can go onto our website and we have maps showing all the sites that are available to select. And what you do is you type in your postcodes, click the search button, and the map will zoom into your local area. And you can then see which one kilometer squares or which waterways are available for you to select. So this means you can actually choose from the selection available. You can see you know, either which one is closest to you or which one looks like it's easiest to walk around. So it is important that we get people surveying the sites from this randomly generated list, because if people were just choosing, then you know, I, I know I would just think, okay, where's the nicest looking place where I, I'm expecting to see lots of bats, which will give you information about the best places bats, but it doesn't really tell you about the other types of um, habitats in the UK. And also, you know, it doesn't tell you when uh, maybe bat populations are increasing and then moving into the suboptimal habitats, which people might not otherwise be monitoring. And I find it really fascinating because I've got a few transects I do, and they can involve walking just down a residential road. And surprising how often I pick up a bat flying overhead on my bat detector when I'm just walking down a residential road. And normally, I might be walking down one of these roads after dark and be totally unaware that bats are flying past. So it really does reveal interesting places where bats are occurring, where you might not otherwise look. So that this is why we go for a random selection of, of squares for people to survey. Absolutely makes sense. And also helps prevent the tendency in a lot of natural history, especially within the UK, where it used to be much more conveniency and, and even still today. So a, a lot of the data sets within the UK are very clustered, you know, down towards the south and closer to urban areas, just places where people are, you know, it's more convenient to get to. There's more people living there. So you've got more eyes and scientists. So having it be more properly randomized, I, I imagine helps counteract that effect. We do get the same problem though, because although our selection of sites is randomized and doesn't have that bias, we do still obviously have better high levels of participation in the more populated areas. So I think the southeast is um, the, the, the region where we have the highest number of sites being surveyed. And then it'd be the upland areas, places like the Scottish Highlands, where we have much lower representation. So we still can't avoid that, that um, sort of imbalance. But we do have um, a new survey method we are piloting. So we're using uh, an overall method called passive acoustic monitoring. What this means is we're not asking volunteers to go and walk around with a bat detector. We're using static bat detectors. So these are detectors which you will install somewhere and leave for possibly several nights. They can even be left out for several weeks or even months. And what they do, it's like the system I mentioned earlier. They are programmed to switch on at dusk and switch off again at dawn. And they will trigger a recording whenever they pick up ultrasonic noises. And 
the advantage of this is that obviously it's going to be recording all night long rather than just for the hour or so where we would normally ask people to be doing their walk transects. It can record for several nights and will record a wide range of species which can then be identified using automated classifiers which can um, automat automatically identify species from their calls to kind of different levels of reliability depending on the species. So some species can be quite easily identified with high level of accuracy, whereas other species, the species which are typically challenging for us can also be challenging for these automated classifiers as well. So they're constantly being developed and um, it's possible that the, you know, the accuracy for some of the trickier species could improve over time you know we'll just have to see but certainly it gives us much greater volume of data on the species that, that can be identified and much easier to use i guess because you don't need to have the same kind of time commitment from someone going out somewhere yeah. you know yeah. more regularly you just go out once Definitely. plant the thing and yeah. yeah so i mean the reason why we think this will give us a much more even kind of spread of of monitoring i think one of the real key ones is that places like upland areas, they're not really very accessible or safe habitats to be walking around at night. Um, so it could be quite a long journey to to go to one, um, kind of maybe less safe, less, less easy to walk around. But uh, um, I think we'll almost certainly have volunteers who are keen to drive to these sorts of sites during the day, install um, a static bat detector, and then go back and collect it several days later, and then we'll get some really, really good data from these these under-recorded sites. So that's one real benefit. The other is that you don't need any bat detecting skills. So there's bound to be a lot of people who are really interested to know what's in their backyard in terms of bats and, and perhaps other wildlife that could be being recorded. But don't necessarily have the time it takes to learn how to identify the species themselves. So I think there'll be a real interest in putting out these devices and then just getting automatically getting some fascinating insights into what, what wildlife is just right outside your window, for example. Um, so I think, you know, that's going to really kind of increase um, the participation in our surveys. At the same time, it's really important that we still have people going out and doing surveys where you're seeing the bats for 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 a start you know that you get a much much more of a connection with with these animals when you can actually watch them and it's really rewarding to to, to watch them obviously um, as you'll know and also develop some of the skills needed to identify them but also different species have different sort of ideal methods of monitoring so for example some of the species that are trickier to identify from their calls say for example the debenson's bat it's arguable that doing the waterway survey is still going to remain the most reliable way to collect data on this species, probably more so than um, getting an automated classifier to try and identify its calls from recordings, because its calls are extremely similar to other closely related species. But watching it skimming over the water, you can be pretty sure that's a DeBenton's bat. It's really also good to have multiple methods for each species because you can then look at the trend from each method and do, do see, do they give you the same sort of pattern? If they don't, then what are these trends telling us exactly? If you just have the one trend, you might just accept what it's telling you, but you don't have something else to sort of check it against and you might be actually completely misinterpreting what's going on. Um, so, so one of the things you just mentioned is definitely something that I found true is that actually going out and doing a bat walk 
was just such an amazing experience, and it gives you a real sense of wonder about these animals. And I, I think a, a kind of informal or, or less formal bat walk rather than a survey is something that a lot of um, educators or a lot of sites um, might find really approachable. And I know you've led quite a few bat walks. I was wondering if you could talk through any tips or tricks for, for any organizations out there that might be interested in, in organizing a public bat walk. The first thing you need is a good site um, to do the bat walk. So it needs to be somewhere where obviously you're going to see lots of bats or have a good chance of seeing lots of bats. So if there's water, like a large water body, then this is going to be a real magnet for bats because water bodies have a lot of insects flying around them. So this can be a lake or a river. And if there's lots of insects, that's going to attract lots of bats. But also parks, you know, if there's lots of trees, that'll have lots of insects flying around them and bats and um, feeding on the insects and possibly roosting in the trees. So just a green space with trees or water or both um, is, is, is pretty much guaranteed to have some bats um, in, in good weather. It needs to be accessible. So you need to think about different people's uh, different levels of mo mobility that people have. So ideally, um, footpaths are, are good because that's going to be accessible to all sorts of people. When planning the routes, you shouldn't make it too long. Say the, the bat walk is going to be an hour long. Um, you shouldn't pick a route that would take an hour to walk because you're going to be walking quite slowly. You're going to be stopping a lot of the time to watch the bats. So really, the routes should be maybe no more than 10 or 15 minutes to walk if you were just walking it without stopping um, at a at a sort of fairly steady pace because you are going to be you know spending a lot of time stopping. Um, I've certainly been on at least one bat walk where we got to the end of the route after an hour and then it was a really long walk back to the start again which wasn't ideal so it's good if if the route kind of takes you back to the starting point it really does take a lot longer than you think because as soon as the first bat is heard on a detector everyone stops and you're probably going to be in that one spot for like 10-15 minutes yeah. um, if the bat continues to be heard on the detectors the walk can be a lot shorter than you think it needs to be and, and still fill the time. Also, you will need some bat detectors to hand around to the group, not necessarily one each, but certainly maybe one between, I don't know, each family group or, I don't know, two to three people, depending on how many you can source. But you certainly need some bat detectors so people can have a go at using them and listening out for the bats themselves. And then there's key information to give out to um, the attendees. So... You should ask them to bring a torch if they've got one. Um, and the important thing to stress is this is just for shining on the ground so that you can just um, just see where you're walking. And that's just for safety to make sure you don't trip over anything. And uh, it's not for shining on the bats. So people shouldn't shine torches at the bats because that will disturb them and will be very counterproductive because they will probably um, fly away and go somewhere else. <laughs> Depending on, on how the walk is pitched, um, children might be welcome. I mean, some walks I do are specifically for children and their parents. So, you know, it's, you know, we have a very short walk for that one and pretty much just go and walk to a, a pond where we just will see tons of bats. Um, and the, the my introductory talk is always a pitched a bit more at the children. Interestingly, I always say to the children, okay, I always find that children know more about bats than their parents so we're here to educate your parents today and it's, it's often true actually i'm quite pleased mm -hmm. um, how knowledgeable the kids seem to be about things like echolocation and flight and, and stuff like that in terms of working with kids I, I would say that 
the thing that an organization might want to think about is not actually the age of the participants, but being really clear of what the event is going to entail. Because I've I've certainly, while we do set an age kind of limit, we sometimes allow it to be stretched a little bit. Often it's, you know, it's not down to the age of the kids, it's down to can they stay up late enough and are they going to be okay with a certain length of walk? Because even an old an older kid, you know, if if they are the kind of kid who is not going to stay interested in just sort of walking and, you know, quiet chatting for an hour, then it's not a suitable event for them. Right. Whereas you can have, you know, a six year old child who's quite happy to go on a long walk, in, in which case a bat walk would probably would be suitable for them. So it, my suggestion to organizations would be to not be too stressed out about that and be, uh, and stress more to parents what the event is going to be um, so that, you know, the, the parent can really consider whether or not it's, it's something that their kid's going to be into. Yes. I mean, I've had a variety of experiences um, in terms of how kids, how much they enjoy it and you know how long they they can sort of stay out for i think on the whole i mean kids seem really enthusiastic i mean they love being out at night they're loving a, having a torch to hold and that sort of thing having a bat detector to listen to, listen to. if anything they 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 can be over imaginative and they'll be constantly saying oh i heard another one i heard another one and i just think i haven't heard anything there i think they're being a bit over imaginative there i think on the whole they just have really high levels of enthusiasm and excitement i think but sometimes you know particularly where it's a site where you know people can just leave anytime i do you know some parents will take their kids home maybe about halfway through because it's it's getting already getting a bit late for them so um, i know some sites and everyone needs needs to leave together because it's locked up but um if it's a public park where you know people can just come and go then then it's, it makes it a bit easier because parents can just take their kids home. And then the other question I had was about the number of people to to have on a walk. I know I've been involved in walks with a fair number of people, and it feels like it's more down to the number of staff that you can have at the event, really, and also the size of your site, um, obviously. Mm. So if you've got like a fairly large open site, you could actually accommodate quite a number of people if you've got the number of um, staff and, and bat detectors to kind of shepherd them. Yeah, and it's it is really important that um, everyone can kind of hear and see what's going on. So, um, if you've got a number of people who who can actually talk to maybe smaller set, you know, subsections of the group individually, so they can actually hear what's going on or see what's going on, then then obviously you can have have a bigger group. For me, I, I would say normally if it's just me leading it with somebody from the organisation. Um, I can usually manage up to about 20 people. I mean, it's it can be a little challenging at times, but um, that's probably the maximum I would, I would go for. But then if I've got um, somebody else who's kind of co-leading it, we could go for 30 or more even. And like I said, if you've got too many people and it's just you trying to communicate to them, the people at the back probably won't be able to hear you or they won't be able to see the bats or whatever. So um if if you're you know if you're going for a bigger group it's it's handy to have have somebody else so you can maybe split split the group a little people a little bit so different people are are listening to a different person talking and and showing pointing things out i used to uh, be asked to lead uh, a bat and owl walk and they would just promote it and then just see how many people turned up and i think one time we had about 75 people um, oh, which is wow. crazy yeah <laughs> but luckily the park is a huge site and you know we're able to have people kind of all sort of maybe spread out in front of the huge lakes in the middle of the park and I would sort of 
I'd have to sort of talk and sort of walk back forth a bit like, you know, sort of like a sort of felt a bit like a army parade ground a little bit, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was able to sort of, you know, if people were spread out, you know, people could see bats and they had batch checks and they could hear what was going on. And, and I'd quite often have to say thing, say one th- something and then go to the other side, other end of the, the row and just sort of say this again, just checking people were hearing. So it's a bit more hard work for the leader when you've got such a big group. I guess if we pivot now slightly, but I've been thinking about over the last you know little while being in a global pandemic, one of the earlier news stories was about the potential crossover event of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into humans as, as being from bat. I'm wondering if the BCT has had to field any questions about that and like health risks of, of having bats maybe you know roosting up in your house or, or that kind of thing. Yes, obviously that has been quite a, um, a big um, sort of topic for us over the last couple of years. And we do have information on our website about this. And I mean, there has have been a lot of misconceptions which have actually really led to people t- taking drastic action in some parts of the world. And in fact, um, killing bats or destroying bat roosts just because of a misperception that these bats are a health risk to people. What scientists do agree on with COVID-19 is that it is caused by a coronavirus from an animal. It's zoonosis, that's a human disease of animal origin that has jumped to humans. But which animal um, SARS-CoV-2, so SARS-CoV-2 is the virus behind the COVID-19 pandemic, so which animal that came from has not been confirmed yet. But um, it is likely that it has its ancestral origins in a bat species. But the really important message is that the transmission of COVID-19 is from person to person. So it's not from animals to people that, that that's causing the pandemic, it's from people to people. Yeah, so so if you have a, a bat roost in your house, you don't have to worry about, you know, going and clearing it up because it's a health risk. Like that's No, there is actually, I mean, certainly in the UK, um, the virus has not been um, isolated from any UK species at all. Um, so we say to people, if they've got bats roosting their property, there's, there's nothing to be worried about. In fact, you know, the reverse um, is possibly, um, well, there's certainly, we're, we're, we're applying more caution the other way around because there is a big question about whether humans can transmit SARS-CoV-2 to bats, which was obviously, would obviously be a big conservation issue for bats. Um, at the moment, we really don't know, but um, the... Um, um, you know, it's certainly considered to be a, a credible risk. So more research needs to be done to to understand the level of this risk. So um, in the bat world, we are taking lots of precautions in terms of close contact surveys with bats. So we're kind of minimizing them where possible. We're using, obviously wearing um, personal protective equipment, face masks, gloves, so that, you know, we're not kind of potentially breathing um, 
the virus onto bats, you know, while we don't really understand if they're susceptible to catching the virus. And we say to people, if they find a grounded bat, um, which does happen quite often, to, for a start, if you find a grounded bat, you, it's important not to handle it with bare hands because bats are wild animals. And although they're quite docile, if they get scared, like any wild animal, they could bite or scratch. So it's a good idea to wear some gloves or just scoop it into a box. But we now say also that if you're, while you're doing this, if you just wear a face mask um, while you're doing this, so you're not, you know, putting bats at risk from catching SARS-CoV-2. Like I said, at the moment, we don't know whether this is a risk, but because it's an unknown, we just want to to be cautious at the moment. So, yeah, interestingly enough, sort of contrary to what, what, what people might expect, there is more of a concern about humans giving COVID-19 to bats than, than vice versa. It is important somebody rescues, rescues a bat if, if they find it's in danger. So like I said, you know, you can get a shoebox or something, um, do, do the way that people might catch a spider. So put the box over the bat and maybe slide something underneath it very gently. Um, or if you've got some kind of quite thick gardening gloves, you could gently pick the bat up with that and put it to a box. Um, and then... Um, if it seems to be uninjured, you can keep it keep it in during the day. So just put a shallow kind of receptacle of water, like a, a jam jar lid or something like that, for the bat to drink from. Um, put a towel inside for the bat to sort of go inside so it feels safe. And then you can have a go at releasing it at dusk. But if it appears to be injured or it, it doesn't want to fly away, then um, you can phone the bat helpline and they will arrange for a bat carer to come and collect it and see if it's in, injured and rehabilitate it if, if needed. I guess just before we, we go, I, I wonder if you could give us a, a few of the top things. If there's any individual at home or maybe there's a class teacher who'd like to do a little something that might help support a bat population, what would be your, your like top line thing that people could do? Well, I think actually creating good habitat for bats, which I think if you've got a garden, you can do this or your organization has some, you know, it's a green space. So maybe a school has got um, a green space um, within it. You know, you can create a wildlife pond because uh, a pond will attract insects, which will be attracted uh, attractive to bats. Plants are night-scented flowers. So these are flowers which will be very attractive to insects at night. So again, providing food for bats. Lighting is a major issue for bats. So um, lighting can really deter a lot of species from using a particular area. It can actually um, create a, a really sort of severe barrier between where a bat is roosting and where it wants to forage. So making sure you don't have lights on at night um, in, in your well, outdoors and particularly in green spaces. Um, and the, the less lighting there is, the, the more uh, we will have kind of un, undisrupted dark corridors, which bats and other, other nocturnal wildlife can move through. So that's another really key thing. Um, you could put up a bat box. So bat boxes are, you know, will give a, a, a good sort of place for, for bats to roost, particularly in places where there aren't obvious um, cavities for them to use. So um, if there is, I don't know, a fairly modern building which doesn't have any sort of gaps in it, which bats might roost in, or mature trees for, for bats to roost in, then putting up a bat box could actually create quite a nice roosting environment for them. Um, it's good to put up several because uh, bats can be quite fussy about their roosting conditions. And 
well, for a start, it might take them a while to find a bat box. And then perhaps the temperature within the box might not be quite to their liking. So having several bat boxes, maybe in at different aspects, kind of pointing in different directions. So they might get the sun um, in the morning, perhaps, and be warmed up by that. And or they might be cooler when when bats want a cooler temperature it means that you you'll have a better chance of at least maybe one of the two of them being used. Yeah, and unlike birds, they they often you know don't want to nest near other ones, but bats are a bit more sociable than that, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So you could get lots of bats roosting in a box if you know if it's um, certain species. You could get a maternity roost of bats within a bat box. But then other times of year, you might just get one or two bats where they're not kind of wanting to huddle up together so much. They want to sort of just lower their body temperature to the ambient temperature without um, kind of, you know, snuggling together for, for additional warmth. Having said that, I have occasionally seen bats huddle together in hibernation, which sounds a bit counterintuitive to me if they're trying to keep their body temperature down. But um, obviously there's more complexities to it than than i well, then I understand for 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 one. Yeah, they they know what they're doing, anyways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bats, and a common phrase, it's common saying, is that bats don't read the textbooks. So we we think we know we understand bats, and I guess as a general rule, we often do. But then often they will do things which are con- completely contrary to our understanding, and <laughs> yeah, shows that you know there's still so much we we need to understand about them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much, Philip, for all of that. It's been really great speaking to you and, and especially about all the different citizen science monitoring projects that the BCT is, is coordinating with. It's really great. Yeah. yeah. So if people want to take part, if they go to bats.org.uk and then click on our work and then they'll find information on the National Bat Monitoring Program. And as I said, there is something for everyone. So if you know if you're if you've got no previous experience, if you don't have a bat detector, but you're just really interested to see what bats you can discover close to home, then then just do the sunset survey. Virtually everyone who does that survey sees bats. Um, plus other other kinds of wildlife. So it's a, it's a great way to get started. Uh, and I'll plonk links to the BCT and all of those different uh, monitoring schemes in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but thank you very much, Philip, for, for coming onto the podcast and speaking with me. Okay. Yeah, it's been nice to catch up with you again, Victor. 